people recognize, whether they be Republicans or Democrats or independents, that their health centers play a very important role in improving health, preventing cost issues like hospitalizations and ER visits, and are core to health equity and the value of what health and healthcare is about. And that they're smart investments, they're affordable investments, and they also deliver extraordinary innovation. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. For the next two episodes, we are bringing you conversations recorded live at the Health Conference in Las Vegas. Our guest today is Dr. Q. Ree, the new CEO of the National Association of Community Health Centers. Community health centers serve about 1 in 11 Americans across a network of 15,000 sites. Before social drivers of health was a commonly used phrase, community health centers had already developed a model of care that was holistic, grounded in social change, and embedded in the community. Dr. Rhee and I chatted about how CHC's knock quality metrics out of the park prescribe not just medicine, but also food and iPads, and have so much to teach us about making change with, not for, communities. So please welcome... Dr. Q. Ree to the other 80. What is really important for us to know about you? When I reflect on our country, we're a country of immigrants, enslaved, and indigenous people, and having an appreciation of our extraordinary diversity and the perspectives we bring to help achieve certain goals like the American dream or to help improve the health of communities. It's just an important perspective to understand and and appreciate. I think we both know Todd Park. He often talks about triathletes and by that he means people who have expertise across many sectors and you've had previous roles in government. You're now leading a large national membership organization. You've worked in technology What would you say are the through lines across all of these different leadership roles you've had? So I've been very grateful to have opportunities in the nonprofit, the public and the private sector and have had leadership roles that have allowed me to incorporate my clinical expertise, my broader policy expertise, and, and then, of course, understanding the business of health and medicine. So I think some common themes are There's more in common that we have across these sectors than people think. There's also a strong appreciation and value of the goal of improving the health of populations, especially those that need it the most, those who suffer health disparities. There's also a recognition that you need to deliver both on mission and margin. You need both to accomplish those goals. Awesome. And you can hear in the background that our music accompaniment just started. So... We'll just treat it as like the backdrop to the conversation. I like it. Um, For those who are not here at health, there's a purple light in the background and there's a DJ artist close by. So we'll use that as inspiration for our conversation. I'm ready to start singing. You're ready. Okay, let's go. (laughs) You probably think of this in some respects as returning to your community health center roots as the leader of the National Association. Uh, What made you decide to come back to those roots? I mean, this is an extraordinary opportunity. It's a dream job. So Community Health Center started in 1965 in Mount Bayou, 
in the Mississippi Delta. I visited there a few weeks ago. And so in the context of the war on poverty and the civil rights movement, um, I was attracted to that story as a medical student and made a commitment to serve in primary care settings in underserved communities. And that is how my career started. And so in my mind, everything subsequent to that in my career has been rooted in health equity and the work of community health and thinking um, whether it's in the nonprofit, the public or the private sector is the work that I'm doing impacting the people who need it the most. The prior CEO was in the role, I believe, 47 years. Wow. So very... Uh, okay, we're going to be talking in a few, huh? <laughs> and so the fact that the executive recruiters and the board, a 33-member board, felt that I would be a good fit, I was you know, humbled and, and incredibly grateful. So you had a LinkedIn post the other day that went through some of the pretty astounding stats about community health centers in terms of their reach how much of America they serve and all that. Do you want to kind of go through some of that, the landscape? I don't think we understand the reach and the importance of this network of primary care in America. Yeah. So community health centers are the largest primary care system and network in the country. Starting with that first patient in a church in 1965 in the Mississippi Delta, community health centers now serve over 31 and a half million Americans, one in 11, In some states, it's one in three. And so as a primary care physician myself, I appreciate the importance of primary care and the value of primary care and the value of that whole team. So in addition to serving over 31 and a half million Americans, there's over 300,000 staff, the majority of whom are clinicians, doctors, nurses, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, social workers, psychologists, dentists, community health workers, In general, for serving about a thousand people, there's a team of 10 that play a very integral role in delivering comprehensive, compassionate primary care. They're in over 15,000 locations across the U.S. And so, as, as you highlighted, it's probably one of the best kept secrets. We have better quality metrics than other settings. So despite the fact that our population that we serve is over 90% or below 200% of the poverty level, nearly 70% are below 100% of the poverty level, 64% minority, 41% rural. Our quality measures are better than quality measures in a private office setting or a hospital setting or just the, the national averages. An example of that is blood pressure control. We achieve blood pressure control for 70% of the population, while the general population is 40%. So help us understand that. I mean, I can imagine a lot of factors that might play into that. But what what is it that makes you able to deliver such astounding high-quality care in often, you know, pretty resource-poor environments except for the clinics? So I think so much of health and healthcare is about trust. Ultimately, it's about a relationship between a patient, a family, and that healthcare team, and that comprehensive healthcare team. And so, so much of assuring you find the problems that people have, you treat them, you follow through with the the evidence-based treatments requires that trust. And so the beauty of health centers and the staff especially is that they're trusted in those communities. They're linguistically and culturally concordant, representative of the populations they serve. 
And so that trust to me is the core part. In addition, the health centers have received bipartisan support through its history, whether it's under Bush doubling or growth under Clinton or growth under Biden. They've grown in terms of the people they serve. When I started as a National Health Service Corps scholar a little more than 20 years ago, they served 10 million Americans. In a little more than 20 years, they've tripled the number of people they served. And so the other key piece of this is that people recognize, whether they be Republicans or Democrats or independents, that their health centers play a very important role in improving health, preventing cost issues like hospitalizations and ER visits, and are core to health equity and the value of what health and healthcare is about, and that they're smart investments, they're affordable investments, and they also deliver extraordinary innovation. I like to say for those who might remember MacGyver, I remember watching MacGyver and how MacGyver could do things with very limited resources. He could create a car with maybe some rocks and sticks. You know, health centers are extraordinarily resourceful and resilient and innovative in leveraging limited resources to do extraordinary things. And so at the cost of only $100 per person per month or $1,200 per person per year, with the most challenging populations that I just referenced in terms of socioeconomic status and suffering from health disparities, they deliver, once again, high quality, affordable, comprehensive primary care and health equity. When we look at the worsening equity around life expectancy in the U.S., I think a lot of people have pointed to the need to invest in social services, but also really look at the redistribution of resources in in this country. I'm curious how you think about that. And I guess what that points to is things like advocacy and thinking about the whole system of health within a community beyond the clinic. The beauty of community health centers, you look at each of those words, community health centers. I see that they're all incredibly relevant for where we are and where we're going. There's 1,487 nonprofit community health centers. So focusing on the community. They have the extraordinary innovation that they are patient-governed boards. So there is no other part of healthcare where 51% of the actual board of the organization, the health organization, has to be made of patients who represent the people they serve. They are community-based. If you're a patient in a community health center, if you're a provider, you want to know who's the boss, it's the patient's. It's the folks in that waiting room. And that's an extraordinarily innovative structural element that came out of the context of the social justice, war and poverty, civil, civil rights movement. And now, you know, think about human rights. It's health. So I learned as a physician that so much of what I learned at Cedar sinai at hospitals and health systems was not relevant or actionable for me if I really cared about the health of a person and a family. Ultimately, health is broader than what's in that exam room. It's what's outside that exam room. It's what's in um, people's workplaces. It's what's in those communities. And so I like to use the acronym HEALTH. It's housing, education, access to healthy choices, ideally making the healthiest choice the easiest choice, but still leaving that choice. Like healthy eating, for example, should be accessible. If If you have food deserts, you don't have access to those healthy choices. Labor and employment. Um, you know, upward job mobility, transportation, and then healthcare. So it's not called the community healthcare centers, it's called the community health centers. And I believe they will be the center of growth 
for community health in the next 20, 30 years or beyond, where I believe if you look at the past performance, they've grown tripled in 20 some odd years. I believe they'll triple in the next 20 some odd years, partly because disparities exist. And I don't actually see an immediate future where disparities will be eliminated and where equity will be achieved. So the nature of our work is persistent and it is not going to go away. Therefore, this movement will continue to push forward to address those inequities, those disparities, and I believe it'll continue to grow. You've mentioned several of the social services we talk about a lot on this podcast, which focuses on the 80% of our lives that inform health that is not medical care. And I always think of community health centers as being kind of the OG in that world, because they come out of a population health perspective. They come out of a systems change perspective. They understand the full range of influences on people's health, but also services that people need. You've also been, I think, starting a really exciting listening journey and visiting journey across your membership and with stakeholders. Can you share any specific innovations that you've seen from your members around addressing the social drivers of health? I believe that community health centers are not only the best part of our U.S. healthcare system, they're also the most diverse in terms of not only uh, racial and ethnic, but um, geographic diversity. They serve island, frontier, rural, and urban communities, but they are also the most innovative parts of our health system, referencing what I talked earlier about MacGyver and the ability to do more with less. There's been a Food pharmacies. I've seen in a neighborhood health in Nashville, Tennessee, where they have a homeless clinic right next to where the Ritz-Carlton is being built. They have partnered with local food banks and given access to food pharmacies. I was just in Savannah, Georgia, the Curtis Cooper Center there uh, with the Accessible Connectivity Program. Their clinicians are prescribing smartphones because one of the biggest issues of disparities is the digital divide and recognizing that you know access to internet and iPads or, or smartphones are so important to help people address the challenges. In Mount Bayou in the Mississippi Delta, they have a museum of the history of the health center movement where you see all the figures and the history of which the health center movement started. And I love the fact that we need to bring more people into rural settings, clinician settings, and they have a place called The Quarters. So um, they get students and residents from many parts of the country, especially historically black colleges and universities, and they basically pay for their housing and also their transportation so they could do rotations in a setting like Mount Bayou um, Delta Health Center. And there's so many innovations they all create, and they think locally If I were to simplify, and we're going to do this at Innovation X, which is uh, in a few weeks here in in Las Vegas, there are five X's that community health centers do for innovation. First, they see a problem, they explore. Next, they experiment with solving that problem or exploring the understanding of that problem. Then they refine their solution. They excel. Um, And then they scale or expand that Um, that solution, that initiative to address typically a social driver of health or some other challenge that they face. And then the last thing is they exchange. They actually care so much about the movement. They're not like a traditional private sector proprietary. We can't share our information with others. 
they want other health centers to benefit from their insights. And so this is another beautiful part of our movement in my privilege of representing 1,487 and having visited 12 so far, as you said, and seen the innovations that they deliver and only having 1,475 to go. But this idea that they all share this purpose of innovation, exploring, experimenting, excelling, um, expanding, and exchanging across the movement. A big part of your role, I'm sure, is advocating for policies that not only support your members, but support the goals, which is really equitable, accessible health care for people in every community. If you could wave a wand and make two or three policy changes that would be in effect immediately, what would they be? So I, I put them in two primary buckets. Um, one bucket is the people who need care today. And the challenges we face, if you look at demographic data, 100 million Americans, we did a study, uh, lack access to primary care. We also know one in three Americans are below 200% of the poverty level. We also look at health disparities, whether it's related to race, ethnicity, geography, um, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status. I mean, in, in general, when you look at America, we have a third of Americans who suffer from significant disparities that I believe health centers are well-suited to provide the services to help people on their path to health, their family, that community. So my hope is that we could serve one in three Americans, and today we serve one in 11. And obviously, in order to do that, there are resources needed to accomplish that goal. On the other side, as I think about waving that wand, I have to think about the future and the future of the pipeline, the workforce. And one of the areas I saw it myself as a medical student, when I was going through the process of deciding what specialty I was gonna do or re residency, there was a stigma associated with one, doing primary care. There was also a stigma associated with working with underserved populations. Why would you do that? You're not gonna make as much money. You're not gonna do as well. And so we've started that movement with teaching health centers. Um, one of the things you realize is when you learn in settings that are specialized and like hospitals and specialists, and you learn extraordinary things from nephrologists, cardiologists, endocrinologists in those settings, those are your mentors. And so the importance of this movement is building mentorship and paths where people can go to like Mount Bayou and be at the quarters and see the potential of a career and how fulfilling that career is in purpose. And the money should also be comparable. It should pay sufficiently well as well. So my waving the wand is helping fill that pipeline, helping improve and increase the salaries of primary care clinicians who serve in underserved communities and helping expose them to those experiences early in their career, as early as elementary school, you know, that this is a role that you can have in your community and you can become the future medical assistant, pharmacy technician, um, dental assistant, doctor, pharmacist, dentist, psychologist in this community. And so we have to think about that pipeline and, and make sure people still should have choice but they should see that this is an extraordinary choice that we value and we're gonna invest in, in, their, in their growth and development and, and their work in that. The final question is, what is a leadership lesson you've learned the hard way? When I started as a physician right out of residency, 
it, I thought I was ready and I wasn't. I mean, that's the beauty of the health centers. You see the, whether the nurses, the team around you, the social workers, they all, the people, the doctors who've been there 20 years, they notice, oh, Q's in there and he's trying to advocate for things. I was doing a lot of what I call tin cup medicine and begging people to take patients. So even though you provide comprehensive primary care, it's tragic when you see an uninsured patient who's diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And then you have to find an oncologist for that person. You know, I was probably a little more demanding earlier in my career as a medical director. I was like, we got to fix this and we got to go. And I think I had to learn that there's so many angles on how you see a problem and there's a level of patience. So that passion of advocating for health equity and the injustices, you have to be thoughtful about allowing that passion to be, to be part of your purpose, but also being patient in the process. And I think earlier in my career, I was, I was less patient and I was more, almost angry and amazed with the moral injury I was experiencing and saying, this is crazy. How can the system treat my patients this way? It took me some time to learn some of more that what I call the ESP skills, emotional intelligence, social intelligence, and political intelligence to advance health equity. But I think I'm better at it, but I'm still always learning. And I would hope, I think you and others, I mean, that is one of our biggest national gifts as a group of people that still feel that kind of passion for change. You're totally smart to develop a nuanced set of skills to address that. But I also love that you'll be cultivating both that passion and the way to channel it through this extraordinary network that you are now helping to um, guide and, and curate. So thank, thank you. Thank you, Claudia. It's an yeah. amazing group and I'm so grateful for this opportunity and to represent the health centers and, and grateful for partnerships with everyone um, because they're, you, you just go to findhersahealthcenter.gov. Uh, you'll see a community health center. We've got like 15 within five miles Let's right here. Let's go do a field trip. <laughs> yeah, we can do a field trip next time. <laughs> so, All right. Thank you well, so thank much, you Claudia. thank you for your time and have a great rest of your show here. And maybe we'll go out to the dance floor in a minute. All right. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> okay, you, take care. Jack Geiger, the founder of the CHC movement, once said, Our concept of health is to build the institutions that make social change. And that's the case for Mount Bayou, one of America's first community health centers. It was launched in a church in the heart of the Mississippi Delta in the context of the war on poverty and the civil rights movement. Now community health centers are an extraordinary network with 15,000 sites serving one in 11 Americans. If we want to return to the idea of health as social justice work, here is where we start. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for more information about Dr. Q. Ree and the National Association of Community Health Centers. There's more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. <laughs>